Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Norman. I am joined by Owen Hughes. Hello. And Callum Petch. Hello. As uh, we have a uh, special podcast this week, um, we're going to let Callum talk for the whole duration. I know some of you might think that's usually what happens when Callum's on the podcast. (laughs) But this week, he has been to, or the last, how many days that you've been down at London Film Festival, Callum? 12, so fortnight. Well, so yes, just yeah, fortnight. Callum has been covering the London Film Festival for us, um, so we're just going to talk to him about that, what he's seen, what he's it's done. Everybody's worst nightmare. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes. So last year you went as well, didn't you? You went to the the London Film Festival last year, um, but this year on your shiny media pass, you were there under the failed critics yes. banner. How on earth did they let somebody in from this awful podcast? Uh, well, last year they let a complete nobody who, um, who wrote for a student newspaper up north uh, in there. So standards, I'm guessing, are quite low. Yeah, but at least a student newspaper is like a legitimate publication. Well, 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 uh, you, you, you don't know the whole fire in the very brief time that I was associated with. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you yeah, know... Uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing the, the way that worked that is um, because I did it last year, um, and since it's there, and mm-hmm. the process essentially, I'm not going to reveal too much about process in case like talking too much sort of black balls you or whatever it is in that there. But um, what it is that is you apply, you give your name, email addresses, social media outlets if you have them, uh, the publication that you primarily write for, and then provide some examples out of. Um, your writing that there um some of them online but mainly they like like photographic evidence and that there so like if you put in a newspaper or something about mm-hmm. they send print screens or that or of that stuff that there there and they assess your thing if you're accept if you're, you're accepted then they ask you for a 40 pound accreditation fee and then once that's processed you get a shiny shiny badge and access to delegate microsites mm-hmm. and Personal industry screenings and all that. Most of the busy work this year got to be avoided because... I'm assuming because we've done it in the past. So it's basically just a case of filling in the forms and then immediately giving in the details for the £40 accreditation fee instead of you know, like having to wait a couple of weeks for it to process and then be given that information. So I'm assuming that that's what works and that. But especially since as well I was able to get... Um, I was essentially invited in to like, apply bef- well before they even announced any of the... Um, like program of that there this year so there was that although uh we'll, uh we'll 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 get we'll get back to that a bit later actually that there although that was maybe not so much b- 
because I've been before, more just from generally shoddy organisation. Uh, but we'll come, but we'll get to that later. Have you invoiced Owen for that forty pounds yet? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm more than happy to just take it myself, really. So, um, one of the things that's happened is you are writing again, which I'm always pleased. I understand you've explained in the past very well. Um, why it's not so frequent an occurrence for you anymore, but I'm always pleased to see when you're you're writing. And again. for those who aren't aware, and for those who aren't aware, you can go check out by checking out some older art, some more recent articles of mine over at callumpetch.com, where mm. I explain in great open detail exactly where I read it. Yeah, but you um, uh, you are writing again, and with I said it before we start recording, it's like you're like a fucking machine because you're seeing like at least three films a day, right? You are then writing two to three thousand word articles. Yeah, it's mad. Uh, it's mad. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually somebody even like, like I even briefly talked to somebody at festival on that there who uh, like because this was before um, you were never really here and I was pre-writing the intro for Saturday's article because I won't be able to stay up that late on a Saturday night to write that one because I need to be up at six forty-five in the goddamn a.m. to get into central London to be able to go watch uh, free billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri um, on the Sunday morning. Uh, so I was pre-writing Saturday's intro bit in advance, and somebody was asking me what I was reviewing at the time about that, and I mentioned that the way I do it is through diary versions about that, and they mentioned that the way their publications do it is that they just want like small bite-sized reviews of things in that there and that's not how i do that's just not how i roll because i am a self-indulgent bastard <laughs> uh and uh, and this is probably also why i will never be a writer since i clearly cannot tailor my work to the outlets i'm supposed to write for. but the the <laughs> stuff like for fail critics we've always preferred it that way for fail critics has always been like kind of um more of like a blog right it's personal blog if you're writing it's about you and your experience of watching the thing so that's why I think people yeah. read our stuff. If yeah. we just Plus, wrote I mean, yeah. the same Plus, stuff that would go in the Guardian, then what's the point, you know? Yeah. Plus, also, I mean, well, well, I mean, for one hand, if I were to do that, I'd need to write incredibly spoilerific versions that basically make people not want to go watch or read the film or read my work anymore in case it gets spoiled. But uh, like, like, like my, my thing when I've been doing these festival coverages has always been like. Like, like, I like talking about the films, and I like writing about films about that. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't do this otherwise. But also, I like to try and, like, feed the coverage through in a way that kind of breaks away the... Like, cause of course, like, the idea on the outside is that press industry screenings about there, that whole idea. Around it. it sounds glamorous, it sounds exciting, it sounds, you know, like... Like this huge thing, I like to just kind of tear away from that and help other people understand what it's like to go yeah. in there and see things like I can see all these films and what the experience is and, ha- and having to deal with you know, like iffy management and unclear directions and the joys of standing out in a giant queue that stretches out into the middle of the street to try and get to a film before being turned away, three people away from the entrance, having to see something else instead and out there, like that, that kind of thing. And then also because it's me and I have my own various issues and that there, like mm. depression, anxiety and that there. I can't help but also go on and talk about those things because I mean that's it does affect how I view the festival and that there. So that's Well that's like, interesting my, my, because like one of the things that you did say in um one of your diary pieces is that you sh- this year you've kind of made more of a conscious effort to talk to other people or the critics whilst you're there, right? And yeah. one of the things that I always note when we have like Mike or Brooker or anyone who goes down to um Frightfest is they always talk about it as like it's a family, it's a community thing. London Film Fest uh, Festival, I get the impression, is less of a community vibe than say Frightfest, which is genre fans. Um, yeah, I, is I, that I, fair or? 
in, in a way, um, I think. Like, the main thing is, of course, is that London Film Festival is the big film festival in Britain. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going on, it's in its 61st year now, is the one that we just got out of. Um, and so, therefore, it effectively kind of becomes a hotbed for the film critic community in England and fair bits of Europe and that there, because I hear, you know, in case you like French or Spanish accent and that there every now and again. Um, the issue is, of course, being that because it's that kind of big glamorous event and that there and Britain's big thing is that most of the people there are already kind of in, like, properly in the film criticism community, like in the press mm-hmm. community and that there. And that means that they, a lot of them seem to know each other, a lot of them seem to be part of the industry and that there, and a few of them seem to know each other. So there's a kind of like, it's not like. Cliquey. I wouldn't really say like cliquey and that there. Like, like, the thing is, is I wouldn't say it's like isolate like like empty and that they or like an impersonal map they on that sense of like mm-hmm. everybody just kind of keeps to themselves and sticks regimented map there but it's in the sense that everybody kind of knows each other and what but like like and not but also not in like literally everybody knows each other but in like there's like pockets out there where certain people know each other and therefore it's hard to if it's something like me who finds great difficulty in talking with anybody who you don't know map there it's kind of hard to know how to jump in in a mm-hmm. way, in that there, it's like trying to get conversations go, especially if you're like me, where you feel like instead, but instead of like smoothly going into conversation, the other guy just sort of like butts it out of nowhere and goes, "Excuse me, there, sir, I can't help but hear you over talking <laughs> shit about the Florida project." And that, like, like, and that fear of, "Oh God, I'm a bad asshole," who's interjecting his opinion when not wanted. Um, so it, it's that I, I guess, like, if I were to have like lived in London, out there, and actually be, you know, attending press screenings on the leg, and that there, then you'd be like like you'd know people and it'd be easier to get into that sure. kind of thing and that there but obviously i live up north with not enough money to go down to london and do press screenings on a regular basis mm-hmm. and that there so it's it, it's one of those things like it, it's still there's always a kind of distance um i, I feel that there but it, the, the times i have been able to actually talk attempt to talk to people it's mo- it, it's turned out fine in that there mm-hmm. it, 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 so that's been a positive in a way, like it, it, it it's helped to kind of mitigate the festival itself sure. this year in a way, which has been a bit lesser in many respects than um, 2016's one was. I found, I, I, I feel personally. Yeah, how many films do you think you saw? Uh, uh, well, well, I, I, have, I have an, I have an exact number because I always keep track <laughs> of these things. Uh, it's 37. In the sp- 37 films in the space of 12 days, which is down from the 40 I managed to get through last year. Or technically 41, if you count the fact that I saw Free Fire twice. Um, accidentally, but I did see Free Fire twice. How did you see it accidentally? What well, um, see, because I was a complete naive, unaware fool last <laughs> time, Right. Uh, I didn't realise until about a couple of days before the festival out there that there were actual like press industry screenings because when they actually gave out the list, they did it as part of an attachment of an email, and I didn't check that part I'm not fair at the time. So I was so, so you booked the like, ticket to see to it. The festival. Then... Uh, I was like, oh god, does this mean I need to like turn? I need to actually get physical tickets back there. So I ended up buying physical tickets for three films at the time, <laughs> <laughs> which ones I really want to see, which was Arrival, mm-hmm. uh, Don't Think Twice, and Free Fire. Yeah, you know, I'll get these before they sell out, so I can at least guarantee a couple of things, and then we can see how the rest of the festival goes. Cause I don't know how it works. And then, literally an hour after I purchased those tickets, I saw what I'd done wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so you went along so, anyway, though. 
But, yeah, so yeah. I had, so I got that. And then on the Friday, I'm at there, I'd finished Nocturnal Animals, um, and the press group of Free Fire was right afterwards at the picture house. So I decided to try getting into that screening anyway, I'm at there, yeah, mm-hmm. just see it advance, and then, you know, who knows? And I got in just, like, I think I was, like, maybe five people behind me. Like, if I were, like, five people further mm-hmm. back in the queue than I was, then I wouldn't have gotten in. Um, so I got to go to the press screening, and then on the Sunday night, I went and saw the film again in the Abangman Cinema with a public as well. Um, and that also helped as well, because the second screening made me a bit more, like, cooler on the film and more, you know, like, realised yeah. of fellow yeah. flaws about hitting that there. So, that, technically last year I saw 41 films, but, like, I saw 40 unique films. This year, 37 and no repeats, whatever that's worth, because... Uh, a bunch of communication issues also meant I didn't think I could, was able to do public rush queue screenings during the days during the first couple of days. So that was mm. that was fun. That was fun. They they, they they didn't do a good job at organising this year, quite frankly. Oh dear. Mm. Would you have gone and seen a couple of those films more than once if you had the opportunity uh, whilst you were there? Yeah, yeah. Are there any that kind of grabbed you like I I want to see this again? I just don't have time, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, a couple, uh, which we'll get to when we do our uh, yeah, five we'll, we'll best list later on. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Um, Just as like I, a sneak I, I, peek for people listening, there were good films this year, is what I was trying yeah, to say. Yeah, yeah, but there, were, there was good stuff. Uh, like, on, on, like, on the whole, personally, I feel like this year the festival was not, like, kind of adhered to that old cliche, sadly, that it, the sequels just aren't as good as the original. Yeah. <laughs> um, for a number of reasons, part of it is my own personal mental state, which has been a bit iffy this past year. Um, in ways that I feel like I make can occasionally make me a bit grouchy and that there, and a bit more time that there. And I feel like that's kind of rubbing off in a few negative ways. And I think part of it as well is the fact that last year it was kind of a spur of the moment, spontaneous decision to go to the London Film Festival. That there, like it was mm-hmm. made as like a last minute thing to kind of see if I could do it and then combat you know like post uni blues. Um, this year, it was kind of decided well in advance, months, maybe even like a, up to four years like that, of let's do this again. And so it had been planned, it had been sorted, and the fact that I'm trying to not think of myself as a writer anymore meant that the pressure was kind of off to not act like to not end up looking like a complete arse, so it could look like more like a holiday. But that, in a result, kind of took a lot of like the magic and wonder out of it and made it sort of you know like, like more routine there wasn't the discovery there this time which is fine in a way in that bear like you mm-hmm. can't have your first time again you can't so that in a result puts more onus on the festival itself to deliver you know like to deliver big you know experiences that can take mind off of things and mostly this year i kind of found that it didn't like it wasn't like a bad festival map there and of course it always comes to the fact that this was my version of festival so i, I checked uh a while back, there are 243 films at the festival this year, which is a lot. Does and that include all the like all. short films and stuff? Like no, that? no, that's for fe- that's for features. Uh, but if you want to include the short films, oh, it's going to be a lot. It's yeah. going to be a lot more than that. Um, but yeah, like so, like you can't really uh, uh, like my number of 37 barely counts for like a sixth of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so other ones I saw, um, I realized this year as well. I've, inadvertently put a lot more focus on the headline galas and special presentations um rather than you know, like going d- going deeper into the individual like strands about their finding hidden gems and that there like it wasn't until i just looked through the program the physical program itself um today when i got back that i realized i didn't see a single feature from the dare strand um this year for example 
What's the what's the dare strand? Just so we. Uh, it's kind of uh, it's ones that are a bit close. They're sort of like close to fillers, horrors, um, difficult films in, that sure. way, in a way. But you don't uh, see, you don't tend to watch those anyway in the cinema, do you? So I mean, it would be kind of a false experience, perhaps, if you'd have. Not, I, I guess not really. But also, I'm also, but I'm also trying to actually push myself better in that regard in, re- in recent years. And also, mm-hmm. um, it's like it's not just specifically about that. But like, like there, there is a sort of grouping around these things. But sometimes they get a bit loose, and it's kind of hard to understand exactly why a certain thing is under this thread until you get to that point. Uh, for example, uh, one of the films I saw, which we're not going to talk about in full here, but uh, Three Peaks, which is a drama about um, a divorce, about um, a divorced mother and her son and her new partner, and that they're going up hiking in the mountains for a family holiday, and then a fog rolls in, and the two, like, and the son and the father, get stranded at different ends, and that there, and it turns into a battle of masculinity, and that there comes under the love strand. Mm. Despite the fact that it's not particularly focused on love or romance, quite frankly. Uh, so, you know, arbitrary distinctions. Uh, but, like, so like, but like, even despite that, the films I did see, I kind of, like, like I saw a lot less, like, garbage this year. Because I saw a lot of garbage last year. Um, well, one of those films that you saw that wasn't garbage, um, and again, we you know, we'll talk about this in a minute for people eagerly hanging on, is The Breadwinner. But you did also interview The Breadwinner's director, Nora Twomey? Twomey? Twomey. Uh, uh, Toomey. 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 Yeah. There um, we go. She seemed, yeah, she didn't correct me when I when I pronounced the name. So hopefully that's, yeah, yeah, hopefully that's like out of me getting it right instead of like just just politeness yeah. yeah okay that's good all right but what was that like because you you didn't do an interview last year um you, so no, this, is, this is your first interview at the festival as well yeah 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 uh, the way it works with these things again can you continue lifting the veil of uh, <laughs> secrecy here is um during the festival you get emails for these events called filmmaker afternoon teas where essentially what we do is you get the uh, they take place at the mayfair hotel Mm-hmm. Um, not located in Mayfair, which is something I found out um, when I was looking at the location. And it's essential it's, it's, is they take you to the to a back room past the cafes, the area I'm at there, where they set up about anywhere between six to eight directors, various films at the festival, into little booths and that there. And you RSVP in advance, turn up, give me a publication name, mention which ones you most specifically like to talk to. And then once they get some free time, um, you go over there, sit down, get 15 minutes to interview them. Uh, for, for, for me, this was actually quite terrifying, not just for the interview itself, because I, I haven't done many interviews in the past. And again, as mentioned, talking to people. Um, but also because like, the, the Mayfair Hotel is quite fancy. <laughs> and it kind of continues this whole air of like professionalism out there, you know, of like people turning up a visa professional critics who do this shit for a living and have done all this before. And here's me, to, and here's me turning up in a t-shirt and like sweat and sweaty jackets and that there, and looking like he hasn't like looking completely bedraggled and like he hasn't showered in two weeks. But I did. I'm not. I'm not being overly defensive about this here, but I want it on the record that I have in fact showered every day during the festival. Thank you kindly. Um. So like it just, it, yeah, yeah it just, so it just kind of like again, again continue this idea in my head of like imposter syndrome of oh god what am I doing here I don't belong, and also the joys of being diabetic and stood around 
tables full of very nice looking small cakes that I can't have because I'd, <laughs> I'd already have my dinner and can't inject to, be yeah. able to have them. Um, but no, eventually, and, and then also the fact that like you just kind of stand around, and you're supposed to like mingle with other people in a way, which of course I can't do because you know, mm. coming up and talking to strangers, it's like. Um, so then eventually at a certain point you do get your name called, then you go over, you sit down, you have your 15 minutes and then it's fine. And the interview went fine, I feel. Um, I'm going to assume there's not any listenable audio on it, sadly, because I recorded no, it on my I phone. No, I did try. I, I tried my best to edit it, uh, to edit it, but it was um, yeah. not playing ball, yeah. I'm afraid. Yeah, it, it, it's fine. Because um, as I was by the continued professionalism of myself, I recorded it on my phone. So, uh, like, no actual like, professional equipment in a room full of very loud people talking like, to other people like that. So it's kind of nice. But it is legible, if nothing else. Like, not podcast quality, but it is transcribable. So, mm-hmm. some I'm not sure if this is going up before or after the article's up or whatever. There will be an interview article of it up later and like that. And it went well. We had a good conversation about uh, the film itself, about the novel it's based on, its relevance in the modern world. Out, you know, it was like the Middle East and outside religion, regards to sexism and real law. Uh, the art style on that bit of a film because it's seriously it's just gorgeous. We'll get onto that later. And it, it went well. It went well. Um, may, maybe it'll be something I could try again next year if um, if again I happen to be lucky enough to watch a film from one of the people that's been interviewed there. Because unlike because unlike what one of the guys running the thing said um, said to somebody else out there, I don't think I'm good enough to be able to try and pretend that I know. To pretend that I've seen the film that I'm interviewing a person. <laughs> Right. By briefly gla- by briefly glancing at the festival program and just trying to wing it, I'm not good enough at that. So, Callum, you've mentioned that you saw uh, was it 36, 37 37 films, at the films in twelve days. That is not an amount of films in an amount of days that I recommend people do. <laughs> I've I've my record is seven and a bit in a day. That was st- all Star Wars. Oh. That was my Star Wars day. Yeah. Um, oh. But I fell asleep <laughs> during the Force Awakens. So I, 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 I once attempted to marathon um, the six Potter films prior to Deathly Hallows and that there in the space of two days, and it was still like, why am I doing this? I hate everything. <laughs> I, I think I woke up at seven in the morning and put on uh, Phantom Menace, and then just kept going. But I just fell asleep during um, Force yeah, Awakens. Yeah, made it almost to the end. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, well, it's well, yeah, well, we'll, we'll, if if you didn't say that you fell asleep, we could have all just pretended that it actually we made it. No, he yeah, didn't, because well. he was live tweeting them all. That was the point, point. Uh, and then he stopped live yeah. tweeting through Force Awakens. <laughs> well, you, yeah. you should have played it off as you being like so enraptured by Force Awakens that you just that you <laughs> make snarky live tweets or what have you. Yeah, but when I woke up on the sofa at four in the morning, it probably wasn't going to carry off very well. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, but anyway, that's enough about me. Um, what out of the films that you saw, the thirty-seven films you saw, um, were your kind of favourite films? Uh, okay, shall we do this in reverse order then? To Let's go. Yeah. Kind of Let's do tension? it. In reverse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the actual article itself, which we go, it's just the film and then everything else alphabetically. But um, I mean, again, I only rated a total of seven films during this festival at a grade of B plus or higher. Technically, after one of the film's directors kindly um, messaged me on Twitter after reading 
my mm. review of it in that fair where I knocked it down a notch due to some iffy sound mixing during Magical screening, noting that that was just from where I was sat and it's actually perfectly finely sound mixed and that I can make that eight, but we're gonna just go with it for now. So, uh let's begin with Sean Baker's The Florida Project. Okay. Uh, right. No yeah, which is He's the guy who did Tangerine. Yes, mm-hmm. the transgender screwball sex comedy. Uh, one of my favourite films of 2015. Uh, partially for what it represents and that there, and that ability for to be able to tell stories about marginalised groups in America without just having to make it a miserableist, you know, like drama about how important it is that they continue to exist. Mm-hmm. Like instead of just allowing them to just be in a ridiculous, like in a silly screwball sex comedy, and it's fun. And also because it's just a really, really fun, entertaining, life affirming movie. His new film is a um, sort of like a polemic on America, and specifically about um, the, the true forgotten America. Not the kind of forgotten America that you hear idiots yelling about on TV and that there, you know, like the white male working class who get behind Trump and go that, that foreigners are coming and taking out the good jobs and all that <laughs> shite. Mm-hmm. Now, this is about the actual, like, economic America of people of, like, single mostly like single parents struggling to survive who are effectively unemployable and yet are forced to like live in poverty and hustle their way through life and that there. But not in a way where they're actually like focusing on the misery. Instead, it's about trying to find the joy and the wonder about living their life. Um, we mainly follow it through the eyes of Mooney. Um, this is largely, a, this is a largely um, non-professional cast, by the way. Um, the eyes of Mooney, who is the daughter of, Haley, who is a single mother living at the Magic um, Castle Hotel, Ma- Magic Castle Motel, um, which is in Florida, about six miles out from Disneyland Resort, you know, from Walt Disney World, Florida. Um, uh, run, and a you know, motel run by Willem Dafoe's constantly, like, bedraggled manager. Who cares? Who cares deep down? <laughs> Um, and essentially you follow through the summer in a sort of slice of life vignette story about that as you watch Mooney make friends, entertain herself and try you know, try and help her mother help you know, pay rent on a constant weekly basis and that there. As this as like essentially you slowly realise on the horizon that whilst Mooney is living an innocent, happy life as a child, that tragedy is that very obvious tragedy is about to strike and it's going to break everybody's innocence. That doesn't arrive until the end of the film. For the most part, this is like a slice of life vignette style on that bit. In much similar way I found to Andrew Arnold's American Honey from last year. Mm-hmm. In that, that's also, you know, a film about the kind of forgotten America going through, struggling, hustling to make it by on a sort of like vignette way where every, where there's a sort of like hope to it, even whilst the darkness kind of encroaches over the top of it. And you can see it coming over the horizon. Much like American Honey, it is too long. Right. Unlike American Honey, it's only two hours, whereas American Honey is two hours and 43 goddamn minutes. But also like American Honey, I feel like if you were to cut any aspect of any scene of a Florida project, then it would actually drastically change the film for the worse. Like part of the experience or like part of the, brilliance of the Florida Project is the fact that it is the kind of film that you have to just give yourself over to that you lose yourself in, you experience, you immerse yourself in the world, the characters and that, in that general feeling of it, and that that's kind of a point, is the, is the whole point is putting yourself in that experience um, and so therefore to try and speed it up to fashion a more straightforward immediate narrative, you know, a kind of like this scene immediately leads into this scene into that instead of having instead of stopping for vignettes of Mooney and her friends hustling for ice cream or um, Willem Dafoe 
kicking out a um or Willem Dafoe very 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 sl- carefully and deliberately kicking out a sex predator who's what you know, like a child like mm-hmm. like a pedophile has wandered onto the premises like to cut out any of that would be to kind of undermine the whole point of a movie and to make it like more conventional when instead it's all about sitting down and watching these reservoirs of sympathy and empathy flowing through for people who are trying to make the best of a bad situation but sometimes are also directly responsible for their own, like, for the problems, which is something that the film acknowledges and, you know, like, full out of that there. Because, of course, Mooney is a child who essentially spends most of her days running around unsupervised and her mother is barely out of her teens herself and not exactly a particularly, like, firm parent about that she's more like a big sister a troublemaking big sister than she is um a responsible like a traditionally responsible parent but baker has actual like tangible reservoirs of empathy and sympathy for both these people and like like for all the people in the film and it's kind of joy that well except for pedophile obviously and (laughs) a kind of like and that kind of joy and sympathy for people who would otherwise be demonized or just erased entirely from now, like from most analysis on that, there it, it, it's it's be- it's quietly beautiful to watch, and it makes the eventual ending when it does come all the more heartbreaking in a way. Um, and the performances are fantastic across the board um, from everybody. Like Willem Dafoe puts in his best work in years um, by doing a deliberate underplaying turn, but everybody's fantastic, and especially the kids, which is a huge surprise. Which is a huge surprise because child actors are notoriously hit and miss when it comes to performances but they are just phenomenal here really and it's really well done it essentially like sean baker's been around for ages uh not like tangerine wasn't his wasn't even his first film and this is not including his works on like tv shows like greg the bunny and that there from back in the early 2000s but in terms of like but tangerine was sort of like a crossover calling card in a way like the point where he disappears from being like a very specific cult audience to a more notable name in the indie mainstream if that makes sense Mm -hmm. uh uh, but this, like, the Florida Project effectively proves that this is, he is the real deal, effectively, in that there. Um, but we have a great filmmaker on our hands in that there, because it's right up there. He's phenomenal work. I, um, I, I really enjoy watching it. Cool. So if uh, the Florida Project's the first one that you've um, decided to tell us about, there must be at least four others that you like more. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Florida Project is due out in the UK in a couple of weeks, end of November, I believe. Um, probably like Tangerine in a very very limited release but if you can see it you absolutely should it's it's a great great film um, as for the other stuff um, number four on my list here mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to choose between this and number three in my here because they both do different things but I'm going to give number four to Thoroughbreds okay right tell us about Thoroughbreds which is playing in um, official competition at the festival as well, which is also where a lot of the best films ended up turning out to be. They are hiding as well. Uh, other ones that have included, includes uh, my film for festival and uh, Belovers, which we're not going to talk about on this in that there, but it's a really fun Woody Allen drama by way of screwball comedy. Um, right. uh, Thoroughbreds is the directorial debut of Corey Finley. Um, so this is his first film, who's also a film as well. Um, stars... Anya Taylor-Joy and Olivia Cook as Lily and Amanda, who are two um, so, like who are two teenage girl sociopaths, effectively, in that there, who were best friends back in school, but slowly drifted apart over time, and have now been forced to socialise together by their by um, 
uh, Amanda's parents, who after Amanda is... Because Amanda is currently awaiting trial for having brutally euthanized her family horse. Like, brutally so. She's been done for animal cruelty charges. And Lily, who, who had graduated from boarding school, has been hired to tutor her in the meantime. Uh, the two eventually quickly reconnect, form a friendship, and help each other deal together with their own sociopaths. And then... Amanda gets it into Lily's head, because Lily, um, Lily's dad died several years prior. She now has a very, like, a giant asshole of a stepdad, uh, Mark, played by Paul Sparks. So Amanda puts it into Lily's head that maybe it'd be go a good idea to kill him. And the film kind of spirals on from there, and it's a riot. It it's a riot from start to finish. Uh, most places I've seen have put it down as a drama or a thriller. And while I can sort of get that, in reality, what Thoroughbreds is, it's a, is it's just an absolutely riotous comedy. Like, a riotous dark comedy, that there, of... Um, ostensibly, like, terrible people, uh, that there, who are products of their environment, and yet somehow have a genuine, like, friendship and connection with each other that shines through that sociopathy. And, like, that darkness and that there. Like... We're going to get into this later when we talk about some of the bad films and that mm -hmm. there, but like, I saw Thoroughbreds right after Michael Haneke's um, Happy End, which... Which you did another... <laughs> No, no, I really didn't. No. But like, that's another attempt of Haneke going back to that world of, you know, of um, sociopathy in the upper, in the middle, like in the upper middle slash upper class and that there, you know, of like how people kind of become numb to their, become completely self-involved, ignorant of all their surroundings and people outside their bubble and kind of develop a kind of well, firstly, like, I am the sense of the universe attitude towards everything else. Um, that, I felt, had nothing to say. Thoroughbred ha has far more to say than Haneke did, and Haneke's basically made his name on that shit. Um, but also has, but like, but also in a way kind of has a sort of heart, has a genuine heart in the middle of it. Despite the fact that neither of these two girls are able to feel genuine emotions like amanda specifically states in that there her whole thing is that she can't like she she admits that she doesn't know how to cry she can't really feel joy or sadness or anything like that other than like pure detached coldness towards everything and yet there is still a genuine kind of like bond between them that grows as the film progresses as they start planning out their revenge and re and hooking up with one of just after school like after that time apart and effectively like enabling each other and that there but the film is aware of how it makes them both worse people in a way but at the same time is also aware of how it kind of of how there's a kind of genuine sweetness in the way they're able to connect despite the fact that there's that they can't connect to anything else in a sort of way and the film is just really really funny as well like it's got a killer dark sense of humor running through it especially in um anton yelchin's supporting turn as tim who is a wannabe drug? Who is a, a wannabe, very low-level drug dealer with very non-committal attitudes towards actually, you know, making some to actually getting down and dirty with anything about that. There. He's a friggin' riot, and it, 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 in the kind of term that other character actors would have used as a way to try and steal the film, like just to pull focus away from everything else. But instead, because but as is the case of Yelchin in most of his roles and out there, he instead just kind of. He of like he grabs the attention but doesn't steal it away from the two leads. 
which is the mark of a great like character actor out there. I feel somebody who grabs your attention but doesn't steal the fo- unnecessarily steal the focus away from the film. Because the real focus of the film is Lily and Amanda, and specifically Anya Taylor Joy and Olivia Cook. Um, Olivia Cook, for one, for me, is officially off my me and Irma Dying Girl related shit list. Like, like she is off that thing completely and out there with a fantastic performance out there. But reminded me a lot of um, Liv Hewson in Santa Clarita Diet, the Netflix um, oh, yeah. zombie yeah. sitcom series. But, like, that character, but without any of the moral, like, quandaries, like, like uh, without any of the, like, morality in that there in the middle, but kind of, like, purposely keeps her from diving straight into the social half the end of that there. It's a great tone. And also, incidentally, if you haven't watched Santa Clarita Diet, highly recommend it. Um, it's one of the few Netflix originals I've actually been able to fully enjoy. And Timothy Oliphant is a goddamn riot in that. And yeah, deserves far more good. credit than he's gotten. He has amazing comic timing, seriously. Yeah, it's weird, um, isn't it? Because you just don't expect him to be that, that funny. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And go back to Thoroughbreds. Um, but Anya Taylor-Joy, um, I haven't watched Split for the record. Um, I've yet to watch Split. But I saw him um, The Vitch last year. And thought she was great, and I am very happy to report she is the real deal. She is absolutely fantastic in this. Um, and but like the witch was not a fluke out there. And whilst I guess she's going to end up being typecast about there between that and the witch as you know, emotion as slightly emotionless, distant um, sociopathy and that there. She is if if this is her niche, she has got it down to a goddamn T because she is fantastic in this. Um, and also one of those actors who. Like who has that weird thing about there where you think where you see him in a film and think yes I'd like to see more of this person and then oh so they've got seven different films coming out in the future where they're in as well and that they're like you know as if like Hollywood was also looking at you and was like yes we recognise you're going to want more of this so here's more of them in the near future because she's also in New Mutants I haven't watched a trailer for that yet have either of you watched a trailer for the New Mutants Just no I mean I saw, I've seen all the promotional material and <laughs> thought uh, no thank you it's apparently more like a horror movie apparently. Uh, mm. I'm going to watch after you. But going back to Four Beds, no, uh, like, it, basically the film is just a riot. It's a lot of bad taste. Of, like, it, uh, bad taste in the way of sitting down and watching really bad people that are products of their, envi- of their bad environment be kind of like bad, but this kind of sweetness in them. It's just a lot of, a lot, a lot of fun. And I really, really enjoyed it. Um, out March of next year, um, early March of next year, it's going to become a lot of people's favorite. It's going to become some people's favorite film. Like it nails down to a specific kind of like f- terrible female friendship bond, but still genuine that there that can make a lot of people's favorite movies that there. So look forward to that because um it like if, uh, like Corey Finley is somebody as well who we need to watch in the future that there. He it's a fantastic debut. Uh yes. Yeah, so what was your uh what's your third? film then oh. out of your top five right well now this is the one that i decided to put over thoroughbreds it's the one owen really really wants to talk about <laughs> okay it's brawl and cell block 99 yes which is the newest film from s craig zala of bone tomahawk which dear god i need to watch now i need to watch yesterday i need to watch that film yesterday if brawl and cell block 99 is anything to go by because fucking hell i am only surprised that you didn't watch it as soon as you got back today that's i mean i, I say surprised i mean you have just watched 37 films in yeah no, days, I, but... I, I need i need at least two days where i don't watch anything else. <laughs> <laughs> I need to. I need to. I need time to distance myself from films so that I can be recharged, so I can enjoy Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which I did not get to watch whilst I was down in London because uh, I've been watching other films. Bone, so, Bone Tomahawk before Blade Runner. 
I'll, I'll do I'll do both that and the original Blade Runner before I go to the cinema. So okay. there we go. Wait, um, wait, does that mean you haven't seen Blade Runner? No, I have not. Don't <laughs> be surprised. I am surprised. I, I mean, how do you got... get through a film degree without watching Blade Runner? That's what I want to know. There are a lot of things we didn't watch on our film studies course, okay? So, uh, <laughs> but I guess okay. I've, got the, I've got a version recorded Ooh. of Sky Movies. Do you know which version? It's a theatrical cut. Uh, uh, delete it. Get the, the final cut. I will watch the final cut. If I like the theatrical one, I will buy the final cut and I will watch it in the near future and I will treat it as a separate film. But for now, anyways, Brawl and Cell Block 99. You wanted to talk about Brawl and Cell Block 99? I do, yeah. Which, yeah, which is the newest film from S. Craig Zala of Bone Tomahawk. Um... And if Bone Tomahawk is anything like Bone Subbot 99, God, 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 fucking damn, oh, oof, oof, yeah, it's like, oh, oh, you know, it's like, oh, God. <laughs> there, seriously, there is, an, there is one specific image in this movie that I cannot, that I has refused to get out of my head for like the last week. Like, it's been like a week since I... I think it's been a week since I watched Bow and Sidewalk 99 and there's one specific image that has refused to leave my head no matter how much I want it to. It's like, ugh, ugh. You could you literally know, like, be talking ugh. about Bone Tomahawk there. That was exactly the same uh, people, for a lot of people. So, I, I, I've seen some people at the festival that they've talked about having seen Bone Tomahawk and they constant... Whenever they've... Um, it's always been in the vicinity as well of people who haven't seen Bone Tomahawk. And I think we always describe it specifically images of pickaxes splitting people's heads in two and that. But, um, oh, it's not the head. Watching... No. But... Oh, no. Well, I have, after having watched Bone Tomahawk, I, I can completely believe that that kind of thing is in there. Because, <laughs> fucking God, S. Craig Zala has a fucked up mind. Um, right, so, for those who don't know, Bone Tomahawk 99 is a prison action thriller, in a way. Except that it except that for one, the the titular brawl, mm-hmm. like most other people make that the name of a ridiculous, like low budget grindhouse movie in that in a way, that's you know, all action all the time, cheesy. Zala's brawl is the climax of the movie. Like like the very end, for maybe like five minutes. We don't even reach cell block ninety nine until ninety minutes of this two hour and twenty minute movie, <laughs> and we don't even go to jail for the first hour. Hmm. When the ultimatum comes in for what um, Vince Vaughn's character has to do, he's not even in the right prison. This, Z- what Zala has done here is less, like, when the violence comes, it comes. But what Zala has instead done is, cr- is craft a slow step-by-step descent into hell. Like, literally, this is a full-on descent into hell. The film actually gets, like, visually... Starts dark already, but gets like darker and darker, and, it, and like the shades and the colorings get harsher and harsher as the film goes on. Partially from him indulging his horror tent, like his love of horror, um, but also like it's explicitly this slow descent into hell where clean, like, like where relatively clean and spacious, you know, like um, mansions and that there give way to claustrophobic four walls of a prison cell, give way to fucking vile shit covered um holes in the ground with broken glass everywhere um where relatively polite civil conversation turns in like eventually gives way to um like like gives way to guards who couldn't give a shit that gives way to extreme violence where vince vaughn's bradley thomas goes from a man just trying to do right by like but goes from a man trying to do right by his family through legitimate means to making a deal to sign up with his drug like with his drug pushing um friend once he gets fired from his job 
to inflicting extreme violence all in the name of trying to keep a wife's a wife an unborn child safe that he is very unlikely to ever see again and quite frankly probably doesn't deserve to see again which is also the thing that Zara dives into it it's sort of like you know like how John Wick chapter 2 was explicitly about showing that mate that the further on it gets that John Wick probably does not deserve the life that he initially got out, like like the good life that he initially got out of, and just showing for, for this is a cage, but this is like a wounded caged animal, who the more he gets into it, the more it kind of proves that he kind of does enjoy what he does, and that therefore he doesn't deserve the happy ending he tries to get. That's kind of what Zala's doing here as well. Um, Isanja is just taking a supposedly good man and putting him further and further through the mud and showing off exactly how much worse he gets. And at the same time, making you kind of root for it in a way. Because, I mean, it's not like anybody else in this film's better. Hmm. Um, it, like, it's... So, backing up anyway slightly here. Um, Vince Vaughn plays Bradley Thomas, who, at the beginning of the film, is working as a sort of repo man for a garage where he gets laid off. Comes back home to discover that his wife's been having a three-months-long affair. In the sequence that, effectively, like, sets the entire tone for the movie ahead in that here. Vince Vaughn, who himself is, like, this tall, imposing, muscular, like, beast-looking of a man with a gi- like with a shaved head and a giant cross tattoo on the back of it. Um, once he finds out about the affair, orders his wife into the house and then proceeds to take... and then proceeds to dismantle her car piece by piece with his bare hands... Before walking inside and having a calm conversation about about why this about why she chose to cheat on him, out there, like that's basically the film in a nutshell. There is is kind of displaying that this is a man with a propensity for violence who kind of doesn't want to do violence but will do violence when necessary and to such like an extreme degree that there's kind of a problem with it. Um, so then um, once he throws his, he throws his lot in with um, his drug pushing former friend, um, played by Mark Lucas, briefly, right there, you might know as Riley from Buffy, um, which I didn't actually realise was Riley from Buffy until the name came <laughs> up at the end of that there, he's, it's been a while, um, cut forward, um, 18 months, uh, where then a drug deal goes bad, and Bradley goes down, and it's when he goes down, but it turns out that he, pro- uh, it turns out that his employers are quite pissed at him. And so order him to make his way over to cell block to cell block ninety nine in an entirely different prison to kill an inmate if he wants his wife to not if he wants his wife and unborn child to get out of this alive. Um, and again, it's a slow burn, but it's the kind of slow burn where every scene has purpose. Like it's not slow for the sake of being slow. This is a film that deliberately makes its way through things with a palpable menace and intensity and like captivating direction out there where even though it takes forever to get there everything still holds your attention because Zalo is that good at dialogue he's that good at archetypal characters that still feel lived in out there and and shaded enough and with fantastic and with strong enough performances um which Vince Vaughn by the way puts him genuinely like all everything you've heard about Vince Vaughn here is true he does put in the kind of work that makes you look at him and realize that this is a man with a su- with an, a sudden second side to him you never realized before, but blows you away the second you do realize that he can absolutely do it. Um, and Don Johnson as well turns up as um, the vi- as like the vicious 
could not give a fuck warden of the hell that um, Bradley eventually has to find himself transferred into. Um, and then when violence does come, it is horrifying. <laughs> like, it is utterly horrible. Like, I like to consider myself as having a slightly stronger stomach for this kind of thing than most people. And even I frequently find myself just having to full on look away. Because, like, the violence when it comes, it's extreme. And nasty as hell. Um, all the more shocking for how sudden it comes. Like, um, like, Zala makes every fame drip with menace and constantly makes it feel like that the powder keg could explode at any moment in time. And yet, even when the violence does come, it's still shocking and out of nowhere. And that there, and awful through amazing sound work where every single like punch and break and breakage of that there actually sounds like it's happening right next to your ear and like like pummeling um and with direction that's deliberately like that that's not that like that's like flashy and shows every hit like and properly like shows every hit and every violence and every foam punch and every impact and it's like, it's not, I'm, I'm going to say this right now, it's not, like, a deep film or a film with much to say. It is just essentially a roll around in the muck of nasty ultraviolence and horrible characters be doing unspeakable things to each other. But goddamn, it's a fantastically well-made and depraved and honestly fun roll around in the muck and that as well, but... Um, Never, but never once feels like it's too long. Never has a scene that's unnecessary. Never has a bit of violence that isn't like that isn't amazing. It doesn't have where all the where the dialogue is funny and witty and entertaining, and just it it just and the drama despite all that it like is there enough that you are actually hooked in as well. Um, again, like I seriously need to watch Bone Tomahawk as soon as possible. You definitely because yeah. fucking hell, this is outstanding. This is outstanding filmmaking. Just. Wow. Wow. It's out on Friday in the UK. Apparently in about 25 plus cinemas. So basically nowhere. I imagine it'll be on DVD of that soon. But if possible, you need to see this in a cinema with as many genre-loving fans as possible. Like, I had the opportunity to watch this at a press screening the day before I did see it. I skipped to go watch an anime called Lua Wall instead. Partially to jokingly spite Owen. Also, I <laughs> But also, I'd always intended to see Brawl and Cellbot 99. I just decided I wanted to watch it in public. Mm. Like, like in a room full of specific genre hounds who were there and knew what they were getting themselves into, but also had no idea what they were getting themselves into. Yeah. Because I knew what I was getting myself into, and also had no fucking idea what I was getting <laughs> myself into. Um, and I have a feeling that, like, the gap, like, the reactions, if I was in a room full of press industry folk, would not have been the same. And the experience itself kind of would not have been the same. Like, to have the exact kind of, oh's, like, when something out, Or at one point, spontaneous goddamn applause at one sequence. <laughs> Funnily enough, at the image, but I can't get out of my head. Um, so, like, like, there is something gained from watching in a room full of of similar like genre fans who are there for the same reason you are if you can i highly recommend going and doing it with them in like a packed cinema other what but even without them this is this is just phenomenal muscular intense filmmaking and yeah again i need to see bone tomahawk yesterday <laughs> because god damn 
Does that excite you enough, Fair Owen? Does, yeah. does that build your anticipations up enough for Friday? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I have to admit, though, I'm, I'm just so jealous. I, w- I mean, I'm not going to get to see this on a big screen. I had to wait, like, a year and a half for Bone Tomahawk to come out um, because that wasn't shown in cinemas. This is just go- this is just going to be another one of these drawn out, annoying. Um... Although saying that, I'm Brooker and Meyer both messaged me the other day to say that they have watched Brawl in Cell Block ninety nine because it's out on US iTunes. Yeah, so... yeah, no, no. It was basically like simultaneous release of a couple of cinemas in America and then straight to i um, to digital media. Maybe that'll be the same thing here. Maybe. Hopefully, like ho- hopefully we're moving forward into that vein where we get that. Same kind of release schedule. Um, also, in the post-film Q&A, Zala mentioned that apparently Bone Tomahawk and Ball Cellbook 9 about to become known as his concise, as his concise, modest films compared to his <laughs> next one, right. which is called Drag, which is called Dragged Along Concre- Across Concrete, which um, reunites him with Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Carpenter, who both star in this film, and also puts Mel Gibson in for what is apparently an epic tale. Uh, he's apparently just finished shooting, and I need that film in my life yesterday because <laughs> seriously, this is that kind of like immediate energizing, like shot of adrenaline to the system where you just sit there and have like this pure visceral reaction to a movie. I didn't get enough of that this festival, and I am so glad that Zalo was there to provide for me because yeah, this is this is the best action thriller I've seen since The Guest. Yeah, just wow, just wow. Uh, yeah, so we're over the halfway point in your, your top five of the festival. Uh, so what is next? I mean, technically we're over the halfway point when I got halfway through talking ball and someone <laughs> 99, if you want to be pedantic. <laughs> uh, right. Number two is The Shape of Water. Yeah. Which is the newest Guillermo del Toro movie. Um, and the best thing he's done in a decade. Like Better no than Pacific Rim, Callum. Right, look, I know that look, I know that when most people say that, but most people say his best film since Pan's Labyrinth, they say that because under the under the assumption that he hasn't made a, a great film since Pan's Labyrinth. I, however, I, however, have loved well, not loved everything he's done since Pan's Labyrinth, but I really like Hellboy two. Mm-hmm. Like, like I loved Hellboy two. Um, they get both of her, both of those Hellboy movies were my first introductions to um comic book movies in general, so they have like a special place for me here. Um, I I I really like Pacific Rim. Don't love it, but I also just but I do love watching Tel Toro intentionally. It like cash in every last scrap of industry cred he has ever gained up to make the ridiculous, stupid. Um, like uh, globalist progressive love letter to Japanese anime and monster movies that he's and all yeah. the stuff that he specifically um, likes. Like, there's something as a joy in that, even if the film itself doesn't quite work. Um, and I love Crimson Peak, which as of which as of Saturday morning is now on Netflix UK. So you are out of excuses to not watch it. Mm-hmm. You can now go watch Crimson Peak, like he should have fucking done in the first place. Yeah, that's um, uh, again one of the, as we were talking about um, Bang Tomahawk and, and and Brawl in Cell Block Ninety Nine wasn't shown at my cinema, so I didn't see it. But I am, it's on the watch list as soon as I noticed yeah. it was on yeah. Netflix. No, no, no. I ha- I mean I'm including myself in that statement. I had the opportunity to go see that in the cinema and didn't because I thought it was a, it was going to be like a full on horror movie and I'm a pansy. Um, <laughs> the thing 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 I've been to know immediately it's not a horror movie. It's a gothic romance. Yes, there is a difference. 
Um, but it's fact, it's phenomenal. Um, so when I say that it's his best film in a decade, I mean that as like genuine high praise rather than the kind of dismissive, oh, it's his best work since Pan's Labyrinth because nothing he's done since Pan's Labyrinth has been any good. Um, but genuinely, this is the best film he's made in a decade. It's fantastic. It's also the single most Guillermo del Toro movie ever made in the history of movies. Right. Like, 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 specifically, if you don't like Guillermo del Toro, you will not like Shape of Water. I can tell you that right now from, from the off right now. This is the most del Toro movie he has ever done. Um, the over, like, the ridiculous, like, like, the, the ridiculous over-earnest sincerity and optimism, uh, his, like, his excessive love of, of you know, romance or romanticism and old movie style, you know, like, romances. Um, 50s B movies and monster movies. Um, there's um, the, the like the villain of the film effectively acts exactly like stands in for American exceptionalism in the same way that the the captain from Pan's Labyrinth stood in for fascist for um, fascist Spain out there like as like the physical embodiment of all that stuff, and his love like and his love adoration kinship with outsiders and and those ostracized from generally considered civilized society in that there it's all there and it's all here in this movie and it adds up to like the most Guillermo del Toro movie ever made but in a way that doesn't take away from the heart and the sincerity and the realism of the drama and the characters of the story being told if that makes sense mm-hmm. like like that's what I love about del Toro for me in that there is that you, you get technically proficient directors you know, yeah, you, you, you people who can just make great films. You get directors who throw themselves into their work, and you can see their work entirely, like you can see themselves on screen and everything they do. And you get directors that can marry the two together. But for me, Del Toro is what that rare breed that can marry the two do- together without have like in a way that both announces how much you know, like he loves it. Like where it's obvious, you can tell how much love and effort of what he puts into film. But that doesn't compromise the drama in any specific way. So the film works on all the levels equally, rather than like favouring one over the other. And he's like on peak form here in Shape of Water. So for those who don't know, Shape of Water um, is set in 1961 um, in a small town in America, located like like in the middle of nowhere, effectively out there. Um, it's at the height of the Cold War, and we follow Sally Hawkins as um, Eliza. Sa- Sally Hawkins, Eliza, who is a mute, who is a mute government, uh, who is a mute janitor at a top secret government research clinic, uh, not research clinic, research center. Um, at the height of the Cold War, she has basically nothing going on in her life. Like she, she has, she has very little going on in her life outside um, of. And therefore sticks to a strict, strict routine, um, you know, of keeping places tidy, boil, uh, boiled eggs for lunch every day, and also masturbating in the bath every um, every morning before work. Um, yeah. Well, why not? Be- yeah, no, 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 no. We've all we've all been there. Yeah. Okay, but by the way, this film's like refreshingly blunt, like blunt and like unshocked approach to sexuality in that there, especially for women in that there, is very important and. Fantastic to see. Um, she, like the, the the only connections she has in her life are her next door neighbor, uh, uh, are her next door neighbor uh, Richard Jenkins, who is a get who is a 
force who is a sadly forcibly closeted gay um, art advertiser. Um, art advertiser. Yeah, but, yeah, as advertisers who draw things instead of taking photographs. Matt there, who was effectively turned into a father figure for her. Matt there, in place of her actual parents who died when she was young, and therefore she's an orphanage. You know, she's an orphan. Um, and her friend, and uh, her friend Viola Davis, not Viola Davis, Octavia Spencer. Um, uh, you know, who's a fellow giant at work, but she feels alone. Like she feels ostracized from society because she can't talk. Like her voice, her vocal cords were just were damaged in an accident when she was young, um, and she like she's physically incapable of speaking, which means she always feels over moved from other people and feels like othered in slight in slight ways. Then one day, um, the research center ends up bringing in an uh, a sea creature dubbed the Asset, played by Doug Jones, because of course Doug Jones <laughs> is in a monster suit. This is a Doug Guillermo mm-hmm. del Toro movie. Um, and Eliza ends up find, like feeling a sort of kinship with um, this creature, because the creature can't, you know, like the creature can't communicate in the same way that humans do, but also doesn't seem to be as deliberately violent and antagonistic as everybody else claims to be. Right there. Specifically because his, like, he's only really violent because he's been captured by Michael Shannon, who is a decorated government man in that there, who basically has. A very low tolerance for anything that's not like like who has a very low tolerance for anything other than himself from out there. Like he is the archetypal American patriarchal manly man. One of his introduction scenes involves him monologuing to um, Sally Hawkins and Octavia Spencer about how a man washes his hands once after using the toilet uh, in the bathroom once, either before or after he goes, never twice. Twice shows indecisiveness, and indecisiveness is weakness, and weakness is not mask, and weakness is is feminine, and for women, like that basically tells you everything you need to know about the character right away. Fair, <laughs> and um, uh, and therefore, you know, essentially, he's just been torturing and thinking, uh, like torturing the poor thing and treating him subhuman. Sally, uh, so what Eliza ends up doing is treating the creature for the first time with kind, like she shows kindness. And she treats him like a person. And the two kind of slowly bond in that there, as both ostracized beings from society who can't communicate in the same way other people do. And yet, when they both look at each other, they both treat them as themselves, like not as like lesser, not as like they're missing something. And so Eliza decides to try and break the creature out of, of um, the prison, like of the research facility. Essentially, what you get here is like an ode to. Yeah, you know, love for misfits, love of um, old cinema. Uh, again, you know, fifties B movies, fifties monster movies, fifties romance movies, um, and also fifties musicals as well. Uh, a lot like Eliza kind of has internalized those kind of notions that communication through dance and that there because you know she can't speak and that there, so she finds other ways. And it's just this incredibly sweet, earnest, completely non-cynical and non-ironic movie. Um, I've spoken to a lot of people at festival. Where this is this is a lot of people's favorite film of the festival, which should give you an idea as to mm. just how great it is. Um, I also spoke to a couple of people who weren't who were there for public screenings and that there, and who mentioned that they ended up losing something from the public screenings because people were laughing or mocking certain points of it. Effectively, this is a romance. It goes where you're probably thinking in the back of your mind. It goes, 
And for a lot of people, that's silly. She snogs, she snogs the, the monster, is what I'm thinking. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, uh, so, uh, 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 more yeah, than that. Yeah, let's, you know, yeah, yeah. But the film play, yeah, but the film plays it like completely straight as like a genuinely sweet, because it is a genuinely sweet romantic thing, the way that these two develop and their relationship develops. And the film's refusal to treat that like in any kind of weird way. It, it, it like it it, it it works like there's no trace of irony it's just pure heart on sleeve sincerity of like oh, and the film also spends enough time on depicting the growing relationship between the two that it end, like that it ends up convincing totally in its own weird way and it helps as well that um del Toro has purposely brought a sense of humor to the film as well him and his co-writer Vanessa Taylor are willing to like 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 make have display a lot of a lot of jokes and a lot of humor about like like both character based and also about sixties America at the time, in the middle of you know in the middle of the height of the Cold War, of this idea of the picture perfect suburban American household and American male. Like at one point, um, Michael Shannon is effectively coerced into buying a, in, into buying a Cadillac. Like he he just feels in his mind that he needs to get a new car, and so he decides to get himself a Cadillac. Well, well he don't, he's just browsing, but the salesman convinces him to get a new Cadillac because. He sees him as the man of the because his the car is the man of the future, and Michael Shannon looks like the man of the future. It's him back there, like that kind of way. Essentially, that people in America can very much have its ego flattered into doing whatever, into doing other self interest. It's a bit. It's a busy film. It's an interesting film, and it's just a sweet, beautiful, heartwarming thing. That's never anything less than sincere. Never anything less than heartfelt heart on sleeve um it can be a bit too long a bit too shaggy have a couple too many scenes like and thematic threads that kind of go nowhere and have dead ends and detours that don't mean anything most specifically again like that specific love of old cinema but that's what you get with a Guillermo del Toro movie really like 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 that's the price you pay for a del Toro movie is that he will have these little flights of fancy and differences and things that don't, yeah. don't go anywhere I think the man is incapable of making like, I mean, anybody's capable of making a perfect film, but you know, like of making like a fully focused, one hundred percent straight ahead, no digressions film that there. But that's fine. That's what you get of a Del Toro movie. And part of the joy of it is watching a master at his work. Part of it of the joy is being able to watch this beautifully sweet, sincere love story. And part of it is what is just the joy of the characters and the world itself. And the set design is gorgeous, and the cinematography is fantastic, and the performances are all phenomenal. Sally Hawkins especially brings such like a central raw sadness and heart like a central raw sadness and sweetness and heartbreak to um eliza the effectively like like that i feel i personally feel like we should just like carve <laughs> like hand carve her name into all best actress statuettes right now to save time because if anybody else is taking it then it's then it's a fucking robbery more so than when amy adams didn't get anything for last year for her work in arrival it's phenomenal um, and genuinely, it is just his best film in ten years, uh, like in the last decade. It is outstanding, beautiful filmmaking, and it is a motherfucking crime. But we have to wait until February of next year. Yeah. Well, you, you say out- we, we do, Callum. You didn't, obviously, but you know, yeah. the oh, general no, no, no. public had have to wait. Yeah. Well, no, the general British public, because of course yeah. in America it's out in December, because yeah. of course it is. Yeah. Right. Uh. So that's the Shape of Water, which leaves just the the, the final film as um, 
uh, in your top five. And I think we've already worked out what it is considering the chat. It's the breadwinner. It's the breadwinner. Let's like let's not even pretend we're build up here. It's the breadwinner. It's the breadwinner, which is <laughs> yeah. an animated. Uh, I is it Irish? I know that yes. the, the maker of it is. Irish. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, it's Irish animated drama by Cartoon Saloon, who are the people who did Secret Cows and Song of the Sea. Yeah. Um, this is the point where I kind of have to admit I haven't actually watched either of those films yet. I've been me like like I've okay. been meaning to. I've been meaning to, but the problem is, especially is like I spent year. I spent a full year waiting for Song of the Sea to come over here, mm-hmm. and then it didn't actually come to any cinemas nearby. Um, and that was just it just it like. It's like it's maddening to me, um, but yeah, they're an Irish uh, traditional animation studio. Um, this is being directed by Nora Toomey, who is one of the studio's co-founders. Also co-directed um, *Secret Kells*. Back to that, and it's an adaptation of Deborah Ellis's 2000 children's novel uh, of the same name. I haven't read it. Um, turns out they did, turns out I didn't want to put any of it in my like any books like that in my libraries back in primary school. But there we go. Um, but it is a um, it's a drama set in war- in Afghanistan, um, Taliban controlled Afghanistan, um, centering around a family, but specifically this um, young girl, uh, Pavana, here voiced by um, Sara Chaudhry, who, when her um, father is taken like when her father is taken away by the, um, the Taliban for harboring illegal books and you know and you know and teaching his daughters and all that stuff like that all stuff strictly forbidden in misogynistic patriarchal um fear-controlled taliban um afghanistan uh is forced essentially to have to become the provider of uh her family because the rest of her family is um are, are also women and women are not allowed out of the house without a man with them in this Afghanistan. So essentially that means if your if, if your provider of your family is taken away, you are screwed. You cannot go out and buy you can't go out and buy food. You can't go and get water. You can't go work. You can't do anything. You are effectively essentially told to stay in your house and die. So in order to provide for her family, which includes her mother, her elder sister, and her infant and her infant brother, um, she decides uh, she takes the step of cutting her hair, like cutting her long hair and trying to pass for a boy. Um, instead to try and support her family. Um, while she's out there, she runs into an old friend of hers, um, Shalzia, played by Summer Batia, who have the exact same idea as her. And the two form, and the two rekindle their friendship whilst going out and trying to effectively raise enough money and find a way out of Afghanistan, where they can get back in contact with Pavana's fa- father again, and then also find a way out of Afghanistan and find a better life for themselves, even with the slow realisation that that's probably not going to happen. Um, and it's just, I finished the breadwinner on, um, first thing on a Saturday morning. And as the credits were rolling, I realized I had the exact same gut feeling in my stomach that I did the first time I finished watching Marjan Satrapi's uh, Persepolis from back in 2009, which was in a way sort of thematically similar in that it's about a uh, young girl maturing in... A in a Middle Eastern country being controlled by a patriarchal like by a patriarchal dictatorship that uses religion as a weapon of fear and aggression and intimidation and control instead of as the beacon of support and hope and um, you know like like of support and hope and positivity that religion should be. Um, 
this is a lot more grounded for Persepolis and a lot more like like Persepolis was of course based on a graphic novel on that there and used graphic novel style presentation. This here is more of a straight drama. Um, right down to the way that again I may not have seen Kells or Song of the Sea, but I've seen images and clips and that there, both from that there. What they've done here is they've deliberately removed scrubbed away a lot more of the fantastical elements and that there while still keeping the same cartoon saloon house style they've done before and that there of sort of like rounded curves and different interplaying of shadings and all that stuff from that there. Um, but I was saying, like, is, is that I came out of Perse- The first time I watched Persepolis and I finished watching it, I had a gut feeling in my stomach that I had just seen a classic. Like, like you know, like those times when you've watched a film and you just kind of know in the back of your, like, in your gut that you just saw one of your favourite films ever. Like, like a bona fide Stone Cold classic. But you don't want to apply that label quite yet, just in case, like, upon revisitation of that there, but it kind of, like, but it doesn't stick there. I have that exact same feeling after I watch The Breadwinner. Unlike Persepolis, which, um, like, unlike what I did with Persepolis, is I don't want to wait. Because after I did end up being watching Persepolis a couple months later again, um, I realised, yeah, but that gut feeling was right. It was absolutely fantastic. I, I don't want to wait here. I am willing to say this is one of the best animated films of the decade. It's it's phenomenal. It really, really is. It's specifically in a way that... It's ta- like it's tackling all these heavy, complex themes and that there. In a way, but in a way that it, that it takes them completely seriously without becoming knocked down in misery and like difficulty if that makes sense like it's finding a humanity and a hope in a situation that for many of us there kind of really isn't in a way that also doesn't talk down to the viewer it's like like so many of the films like this would be would attempt to try and undercut the drama with a joke or some kind of winking aside or not be willing to follow its story down as dark, like, like as far down the dark hole as it needs to go. But the breadwinner doesn't shy away at any point from the, from the difficulty and the the heartbreak of, and the fear of living in a place like Taliban controlled Afghanistan and the difficulty of living in a country that, even now, that even as bad as things are now, isn't even really that much worse than it could have been originally. Like living in a, 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 a country and a nation that's always been in some kind of instability. Um, as the film explicitly points out in you know, its opening sequence about that and how it could turn to such an aggressive fear-based system. Um... And that it does all this and finds all that without ever becoming miserable. In that, it, 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 it finds the humanity, it finds the heart, it finds where what these characters need to do in order to keep moving every day, to, to go forward, to find, to, to go out again, to find another job, to, to, to find more money, to, feel, to figure out a way to move out from this. And that if, and that even when things look bleak, and even when thing and even when things are bleak, even when the hope appears to die, but there is still and even in a land where religion has been twisted and turned into this thing of 
suppression and aggression and fear is the other ways that we find ways to tell story like like to find the hope to find it in friends to find it in wild dreams that in the back of our heads we kind of know won't come true but want to hope on anyway or um, by telling stories there's a parallel thread throughout the film where uh, Pravana who at the beginning of the film is a child but kind of wants to just progress to being an adult anyway you know as you get you know as you are when you're a child about that you get to a certain point where you just think that I don't want to be a child anymore I am now an adult I'm going to I'm going to forget all those childish things and move on. So in order to... Like, Pravana is, attempts to try and... Throughout the film, repeatedly tries to reassure her younger brother about the situation by distracting him with um, fanciful stories. Um, which... Uh, like, like with fanciful stories, which is where all the big, like, flashier animation that cartoons normally go for has been moved to. And that it's done in a specific kind of paper puppetry papercraft theatre kind of way in that there. It looks fantastic. Um, so she keeps telling him the story. Um, but then throughout the film, she starts telling it to other people as well. She starts telling it to Shalzia as well, after they have a tense escape from a Taliban patrol in that there, um, as well as to try and provide hope. Uh, Shalzia kind of, uh, deliberately trying to turn each of the stuff, trying to turn some of the darker elements into happier elements in that bed, which fits more of her worldview. After a hard day, Pavani gets, uh, like Pavani's mother takes over the story instead to try and provide her with comfort and hope. And near the end, she's effectively con finishing the story to no one in order to provide herself with the courage to keep pushing forward in times of hardship. And it's the, and it all ties into those different ways of how we find reasons to go on when we can't. Um... Because I know that a lot of it, for a lot of people that kind of rolls their eyes because it's kind of a cliche at this point that the big critically acclaimed animated features always feature a part somewhere in there that stories about stories, you know, like Kubo did it, Lego Movie did it, all that kind of stuff from out here. But it it genuinely works and trying to step around things as as much as possible as well, uh, like without spoilers because everybody needs to see this when it comes out seriously. By the time the ending comes round, a lesser film would have found a full-on happy ending to go to, or would have gone for just bleak misery. But Breadwinner is so true to itself, and true to the story, and true to the themes, and true to uh, like the severity and the difficulty of the situation, that it's able to find some kind of middle ground. And in that middle ground is a genuine, sweet, bit bittersweet beauty to it all that just kind of that left me full-on sobbing in a darkened cinema for like first thing on Saturday morning with other people around me similarly just bawling their eyes out through it's it's just phenomenal it really it really really it's hard it's hard to find the exact words to describe it in that there and in a way that I feel like I can't, like, for, I could use all the superlatives in the dictionary and none of them would, and I'd still not have enough to properly describe how much I love this movie. And that's not even getting into, like, how beautiful it is to look at as well. Like, visually, this is the best animated film I've seen since I first saw The Prince of Egypt in, like, 2014. Like, seriously, every single frame of this thing is a masterpiece. You could hang it up in an art gallery, uh, like, any random frame in an art gallery, and it would fit perfectly. Like, like nobody could complain for the interplay between shadings the character designs the ways that it creates the crushing sense of the, like like the, the town like the, the, the danger of the towns and the deserts and 
prison camps all that stuff from that but it it looks outstanding and it's just it's just phenomenal it really is and i adored it to peace i saw nothing else this festival that came anywhere close to the breadwinner i've it's better this has been a phenomenal year for film as is already in that there and this already and this is better than even most of the best films i've seen this year quite frankly i adore this thing to pieces and i cannot wait to be able to see it when it comes out next year um in the uk uh like like i i didn't know it was coming out uh nor to me when i interviewed her thankfully did mention that it's coming out in the uk in may on the 25th of may it's coming out in america in november because of course it is but um yeah it's just it's absolutely phenomenal and an in, like an, an instant classic. I came out of that thing. I I I will always remember where I was when I first saw the Breadwinner, and not just because of course I was at a festival and that, but like genuinely, I will always remember where I first saw it. It's it's outstanding filmmaking, and just yeah, just yeah. I I, I, can't, I can't really write small words on it to be honest. Here, otherwise I'm just gonna be kind of stammering around and like in adulated glee for like forever and that. First, somebody cut me off now before we could go. <laughs> Okay, um, yes. So um, that was your your top five, and we'll be back in a minute with uh, we. Well, it was meant to be uh, five of the best and a few of the rest. That's what we did last year. So that's what we're doing again. Okay, so Callum, just to finish off this week's podcast, why don't you just tell us about some of the other films um, that you've seen, um, either enjoyed, not enjoyed. Um, that we should particularly look out for, or particularly uh, avoid, like the plague. Yeah. Uh, we'll hold this up here, and we'll probably just stick uh, to the biggest name films here, which will be opening and closing films, and mm-hmm. one or two others. Uh, opening film first, Breathe, which is the directorial debut of Andy Serkis, and I've already forgotten completely about it. <laughs> Yeah. No, no, no. Genu- genuinely, like last year, I watched United Kingdom, mm-hmm. uh, which was a film about a loving couple overcoming adversity against a, a true story based on a loving couple who who together through love and positivity overcome hardships and you know live long happy lives together. And Breathe is that exact same kind of milk toast film. It's even co-produced by BBC Films, just like the last one was as well. Uh, Based on the tale of Robin Cavendish, played by Andrew Garfield, at his absolute muggiest, who falls in love with his wife, played by Claire Foy, who's she. He there, falls in love I with guess. his wife, so she's you know already I, married before he shut up. <laughs> um, and then on a trip to Africa, he contracts polio, and then through positivity and good spiritedness and ingenuity, and the help of Hugh Bonneville's kooky inventor sidekick, helps create. Helps make great strides in the field of care of disability care, you know, through like creation of wheelchairs and advanced breathing equipment. Whilst doctor, whilst the whole of stern doctors, doomsaying doc- doctors, stand around him going, grr, 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 "That's not even medical books. You can't do this." Blah, 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 blah. It's fine. Mm-hmm. It's fair. Mm-hmm. It's empty. It's empty. It's, it's Sunday. It's early Sunday afternoon viewing at best. Uh, Circus has a decent has a decent visual eye. He does a very good job at like approximating old school Hollywood dramas and that there, which is a lot of what this can refer to. Mostly, however, he's just I'm I'm looking forward to when he finally gets to put his directorial talents towards a script that's not basically a Mad Libs Oscar bait. 
I was going to say, who oh. who are these kinds of films made for? I mean, who what who sees something like this, or you know, a United Kingdom that you you've mentioned was uh, opening film last last year. I mean, yeah. who sees this old people. schmaltzy? But they don't know, do they? Because the old people that I know don't like shit like that. They just uh, Victoria and Abdul is still in cinemas, so. I think that's I, like, something like, different, though, isn't I, it? I, I honestly thought that would have disappeared from, from my local cinema by the time I got back but no, from, from London, but nope, apparently it hasn't, so now I'm going to have to go see it. But that's kind of Royals, and Royals has a different kind of audience, whereas this is just just uh, generic-sounding, schmaltzy drama that I don't know who, who, who wants that anymore. In, in in a way, it's a remnant of an old of cinema gone by when cinema would actually try and aim at a whole bunch of different people instead of just pumping out giant blockbusters every day in that. There, um, it's it's fact, like my 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 problem with it is that it's a deeply personal story. The film's producer is Jonathan Cavendish, who is Robin's son, mm. and so he's made the film as as a tribute to his father. And despite that, and despite clearly having good intentions from everybody involved, the actual film that's come out. And the script of it is the most bland, personality-free, like, empty drivel possible. With no, like, where there's no human heart, because much like with the United Kingdom, it montages through the entirety of our leads, like, romance in the opening five minutes. So there's no actual, like, centre mm. there. And, the adver- and that puts focus on the adversity. Except that every time a moment of adversity comes out, Hugh Bonneville walks in, go- does a goofy Hugh Bonneville thing, and then it's completely fixed. So, like, like the drama doesn't work. Like, the, the drama of anything going wrong doesn't work, and the drama of the, ca- of the human stuff doesn't work. So there's kind of just nothing there other than just sitting and going, this is fine, I guess. I mean, you have Andrew Garfield mugging like he's Eddie Redmayne in The Theory of Everything, and mm-hmm. that's it, wa- it wasn't fun when Eddie Redmayne did it in The Theory of Everything, so I don't know why it's happening here. No. But uh, so also, yeah, sorry, yeah. Also, also, curiously, um, before the screening, the BFI wheeled up Andy Serkis at stupid o'clock in the morning onto the stage to introduce the film to us. No other screening at the Odeon Leicester Square did this, including the closing film, which makes me think somebody at the festival realised they dropped a bollock and were trying to sweeten over some press people and that there by wheeling up a movie star to try and make us feel like we were very special and would go easy on the movie as a result. Uh... It's, uh, yeah, it's basically, the, the most damning thing I can say about it is actually from an AV club review of the film, because the film just came out in America for a weekend in previews, and they mentioned that it's the theory of everything for the, for a new generation, mm. which it basically is. Like, I, I don't even know what, Andy Serkis has had played Ian Drury in Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll as a polio sufferer. I don't know why he didn't take Andrew Garfield to the side and just went, Andrew, mate, you're being shit. Stop being shit. Because, dear God, Andrew Garfield is fucking insufferable here. He is awful. Just awful. Although, on the bright side, he does make everybody else's quirky... I owe governor, chip, chop, fish, fish and chips, very poppins, mm. stiff off a lip, keep calm, carry on, what, 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 what? Characterizations slightly more tolerable by virtue of them not being as bad as Andrew Garfield. Tom Hollander needs to start in a good movie again, please. Can somebody please put Tom Hollander in something good again? I miss <laughs> seeing Tom Hollander in good things. Rev was good. I miss Rev. Can we bring Rev back, please? <laughs> well, there was um ah uh, the guy who did Rev made another sitcom this year, didn't he? On BBC. Oh, oh did he? What was it? What was it called? I remember it being quite good. Quacks. It was called Quacks. It was come... quite good. But okay, so Breathe was the opening film. Not very good. Yeah. What was the closing yeah, no. film for the festival? 
I'll get to that quickly in that way. I just say, however, it makes a great counterpoint to Journeyman, okay. which is Paddy Constein's directorial return. Because, um, of course, in 2011, he dropped Tyrannosaur on a world that was not, not ready for Tyrannosaur at all. Good Lord. No. Um, you know, which was a bleak, miserable, hopeless, realist human drama about addiction, depression, and abuse. And his newest film is nothing like that at all. <laughs> it is an a thematically empty, schmaltzy, uplifting movie in which a man, with the support of his loving wife, overcomes uh, uh, overcomes a traumatic injury and beats a road to recovery. The man is boxer uh, Matty, Bo- uh, Matty Bourne, played by Paddy Considine himself. His wife is played by new Doctor Who Jodie Whittaker, and the injury is traumatic brain is traumatic brain damage, uh, like it's severe brain damage. Which has, from his days as an over the hill boxer, which has left him effectively mental, like, which has reduced his mental faculties to basically nothing, given him temporary amnesia and made his physical abilities basically nothing. Uh, it is, it's an empty crowd pleaser. I could tell, but as soon as the credits rolled, but a lot of people weren't happy about the fact that it was a thematically empty crowd pleaser. Which, I mean, it's fair. It's a, it, it is a reducing of ambition for Considine after Tyrannosaur. He has proven he can do more than this. But. I can't be as hard on it as most other critics are because it works. And it works for a reason that Breathe doesn't, and that's because, whereas Breathe is insincere and personality-ness and just, you know, like, schmaltz and slock and schlock, that Considine seems to genuinely believe in, in all these emotions here. Like, it's not like in, like when somebody else, you know, like, sits down out there and makes films like these for, like, an easy paycheck or whatever out there or to gain Oscars. It's that throughout the entire film... I genuinely think Considine, from the bottom of his heart, wants to make this kind of movie. And that it shows through in the filmmaking itself, in the style of it, in the pacing, in the heart that kind of comes out of the film, in Considine's performance itself, which, on paper, is, is you know, another blatant Oscar bait, empty, you know, like, stylistic performance. But he's able to drill down and find some semblance of emotional truth and humanity in there. And that's why Journeyman works and actually did manage to make me cry during its uplifting ending, even though I called it from basically frame one what would happen. And but by the time it happened, I, I was just I was in tears anyway. Um but Breathe just kinda let me stuff there like I wanna go home now. Not if that makes sense. And it's because even though it's empty and has and deliberately something to say and it's a reduction of emotions, Constantine finds the emotional truth in it. And that's why crowd pleasers can work. It's because so many people just use them for cynical fishing for awards baits, but when you do it right, it works gangbusters. And like Journeyman, whilst not going to be anybody's favorite film and probably going to be like somewhat disposable, works gangbusters. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like proof that, you, that this film kind of justifies its own existence when done right. Closing film now to go back to you, Owen, before I interrupted you to talk about something else <laughs> was Martin McDonough's Free Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. It's better than Seven Psychopaths, which for record here, by the way, I kind of thought... It's entertaining, but it was trying so very desperately to appear cleverer than it was that it disappeared up its own arse, and that ultimately made it kind of disposable. Um, It's better than that. It's still not great. It's kind of a mess. Um, Specifically, like, it's a giant tonal mess. Mm -hmm. Um... It's a very interesting, like, like, it, but it is always entertaining, if nothing else. Uh, Free Brothers Outside Ebbing, Missouri takes place in Ebbing, Missouri, uh, following Francis McDormand as 
a mother whose daughter um seven eight nine months ago it keeps being like eight different things give different sources um where her daughter was raped and murdered on the side of the road and the police have managed to find no arrests and done nothing about it believing them to be either incompetent or lazy or anything like that she takes out um f- advertising space on free billboards on a mostly abandoned road outside ebbing missouri which read raped whilst dying yet still no arrests how come chief willoughby will attempt to try and galvanize the police force into doing something uh the problem is, however, things are a bit more complicated than that, in that it's not laziness or incompetence in the police force that's responsible for this, although they are horrendously self-absorbed, in, like, horrendously self-absorbed, imbecilic, and, like, prejudiced, racist, homophobic, and that there as all hell. Um, it, they just genuinely don't have any leads or, like, any form or anything to be able to take the case forward in any further momentum. Plus, her specific naming out of Chief Willoughby is kind of a problem, because Chief Willoughby, played by Woody Harrelson, is dying of cancer. Which is an open secret that most people in the town already know, and it kind of makes it look quite insensitive. Plus, even with... Plus, um, Francis McDormand's ex-husband was a police officer himself, and used to beat her constantly, so there's like a specter of abuse hanging around there. Plus, plus... Whilst the billboard stunt has galvanised the police, it's not so much galvanised them to solve the case as it has to try and pressure Mil- uh, Francis through any means necessary to get the billboard down, to take those billboards down. Primarily led by Sam Rockwell's drunk, in- incompetent, excessive force, racist police, like racist washout lunatic of a cop who keeps being given second chances because the police are incapable of taking any criticism whatsoever and have a severe boys club that gives everybody a wide berth to do things. Basically, unlike with Seven Psychopaths, McDonald's could turn up with things to say about small-town America, about the police force, about grief and anger and letting go. But it's all very interesting, all very well done. The performances are fantastic across the board, um, inclu- especially Francis McDormand, who, as I mentioned in my review, do- kind of has ma- doesn't give bad performances, like, she doesn't give bad performance. I don't think I've ever seen a bad Francis McDormand performance in my here, but she is still on phenomenal, near-career best form here. Um, like, it was, like, of a pure, like, anger and t- and no and takes-no-shitness and that there, but belays a, gr- like, a grief and a sadness at her heart that she won't allow herself to properly deal with. And Sam Rockwell, who thankfully, finally, has been given a script that actually it forces him to act in, and play a character of interest instead of just having to coast by on his charisma. And isn't that nice to see for once? Um, and it's always very entertaining, looks fantastic. The problem is tone. Hmm. The, it, 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 the easiest way I can describe it is that basically everything is a joke until it very suddenly is not. Like, the tone will feel not just on a scene-by-scene basis, it will switch on a line-by-line basis, often multiple times within one scene. And that makes it very hard to invest in the drama, when everything is a joke, until it suddenly isn't, and you keep undercutting every sequence of drama with a joke straight afterwards, it kind of makes it hard to actually have the emotions resonate with you on a deeper level. The jokes are funny... Not just playing the jokes here, the jokes are often very funny. This is a very funny film, because if there's one thing Martin McDonough is really good at, it's making bad taste comedy sound amazing, that sounds amazing coming out of actors' line, out, out of actors' mouths. But the constant jokes kind of mean that the emotions don't quite work, and the film never actually manages to reach that greatness or that deeper level of investment that it's clearly aiming at so hard. 
Um, this will be the point where I would invoke In Bruges, which is McDonald's debut movie. Still a phenomenal movie and will be 10 years old exact, and will be have its 10th anniversary by the time in, um, Three Billboards comes out in the UK. Jesus Christ. Um, but I'm trying to learn to let go of like that fact. In the same way that I'm like trying to let go of Sicario in Taylor Sheridan's screenwriting career. McDonough is a good filmmaker. He makes good films. He's never going to make In Bruges again. You, you, you can't. You can't bother that lightning twice. And that's fine. It's not me give, that doesn't mean we can give a pass to like bad films um, out there. But it just means that you kind of need to start grading on a different curve. And Free Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, even though it has a massive tonal problem and is not in Bruges, is still a very, very entertaining movie and re- really fun to watch with fantastic performances. It's just not one I'm going to think back on much in a couple of like weeks or months' time, sadly. Uh, and again, it's down to that issue of tone, which means that nothing truly lands emotionally like it should do. It's a shame. But, better than Seven Psychopaths, at least. Hmm. So, there's that. Okay, and... Uh, we're kind of run... We've run out of time, almost, so I just want one one more <laughs> film. Should pick one that you want to talk about? Killing of a Sacred Deer or The Party? Because I think both of those could have quite interesting things for you to say about them. Uh, well, I'll, I'll pass on talking about Killing of a Sacred Deer because it's one of those ones where I recognise that if you're a fan of Yorgos Lanthimos and you love The Lobster, you will love this. Mm-hmm. But, but Lanthimos and I just won't get along. Like, I watched a lot of the problems I have with Killing of a Sacred Deer are the same ones that I had with The, lob- with the second half of The Lobster and why I ultimately felt cold about that. Okay. So right. I'm not really so- at love to talk about. So let's talk briefly about Sally Potter's The Party yes. instead. Mm-hmm. Which is fucking garbage. Yeah. Uh, it is a political comedy, supposedly, um, involved starring Kristen Scott Thomas as one of the members of the shadow op- of the opposition to the government out there, of the opposition party, who's just been made shadow health secretary, um, and she's having a party at her house to celebrate um, with her drunk with her drunk wayward husband, played by Timothy Spall, her. Older, her older feminist colleague and that there, played by Patricia Clarkson. Lesbian friends, played by Cherry Jones and Emily Mortimer, who have news of her own to share. And Killian Murphy shows up from a completely different movie. Um, it turns out people are hiding things from each other. Not everybody's nice, and everybody's a giant fucking hypocrite. <laughs> um, and it's right. Um, nearly two years ago now. Uh. One of my best friends um, coined a phrase to me that I've been that I've nicked ever since that I've nicked and used myself ever since because it's a perfect description of certain things for me about here um, called the smart person comedy, which I used for simulation. I, I was just going to be simulation to Noah Baumbach's films from twenty fifteen. You know, both Mistress America and uh, when, While We're Young. Um, a smart person comedy is a film that is a comedy that is so insistent on appealing like on appearing smart to smart to self-professed smart people that it's actually not they actually forgets to be funny and it's just kind of a massive irritating drag like the kind of thing that, pe- that you don't so much watch to laugh at as have a certain subsection of people chortle at in recognition of of oh yes they're talking about intelligent things here and i get that because i am an intelligent person who knows smart fit who is a smart person who's very well read and very well educated ha 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 chortle 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 whilst everybody else just stares at dumbfounded wondering where the jokes are supposed to what why everybody's laughing and where the jokes are and like and not in the way of like 
you know, humor subject and all that. As in, like, genuinely, there's no actual jokes here. Like, there are no setups or punchlines or any rhythm or any, like, sense to the comedy that goes on here. But it's just sometimes people laugh and you're not, sh and you genuinely don't understand why. The party is, the, is that to a T and it's fucking insufferable. Because nobody in this film is a character and none of the dialogue is anything. It's just horror, it's just thin, it's like barely sketched beings vomiting their ideologies out in terribly overwritten, unwieldy bursts of, of like word vomit. And then okay, and that apparently on its own is supposed to be funny. Like, it's essentially for 70 minutes, and this is only 70 minutes, by the way, so you'd expect a tight, focused, compact, laugh-a-minute roller coaster. Um, instead, every single just kind of has somebody yell out their yell out something they believe in, then say something that contradicts that, and that in and of itself is supposed to be funny, because that means they're a hypocrite, and that that's automatically funny? Mm. I, that makes a joke, I guess, in some way. I don't, I don't know. Um, and then, you, I mean, like, like occasionally Patricia Clarkson will say, a, a, will say a ghastly, overwritten, and non-funny, non-sequitur put down about there. Killian Murphy. Do, do you think Killian Murphy? Do you think Killian Murphy running around, like, just like running around, stammering randomly and sweating, like, flu, like sweating spinal fluid, is inherently funny? Like, like he's not doing anything here, but. Like, just his mere presence, sweating, like, drenched in massive flop sweat, is inherently hysterical. If so, the party is the movie for you. Also, learn how jokes work, please. <laughs> um, also, uh, and to Nick from A Little White Lies Reviews here, also, for some reason, it's shot in black and white. I don't know why. There doesn't seem to be a reason. And also, at the risk of being called a hypocrite here, um, I watched a uh, Danish absurdist surrealist comedy as well later that week called Quality Time, which theoretically is also a smart person comedy. That's what I'm about. It's kind of like about masculinity about them, does things in a deliberately ridiculous abstract way. Except for the fact that Quality Time does have jokes in there. It has jokes in a specific, like, but like for a specific delivery system you just have to get on here. Like, like you have to get on a surreal absurdist length. But there are jokes, like with like setups and punchlines. The funniest bit being one bit at the end where a guy, like where a guy with a guitar sits down and plays a really shit song for four straight minutes with no lyrics. It's just four chords changing back and forth as you slowly see everybody realise that he's not going to stop, even though they desperately want him to and they can't make him. And I was there busting guts laughing because, despite how that sounds, there's like there are jokes buried in there. There's a setup. There's setups that have been set up beforehand. There's a rhythm to it, and you get it. Whereas in the party. Somebody says that they somebody claims initially at the beginning of the film that they're a feminist, and then they'll say some horrifically misogynistic thing that's, that insinuates that lesbians aren't real people, and that's supposed to be a joke because you know, you know, like the party is genuine is the kind of film that could only be loved by people who are insufferable at real ones. Quite frankly, it's it's awful. I hated every second of it. Yeah, don't don't watch the party. Yeah, in cinemas now. <laughs> but that's it then, really, um, for this this year's yeah. London Film Festival podcast. Yeah. yeah. Um, so thanks for uh, for uh, coming on and going through those films with us and the whole experience of being at the uh, festival, Callum. Thank you, thank you for having me. And you'll be uh, putting up a full kind of. Um, uh, best of list that goes on the web, the website. I've written right up as well. well, well simultaneously. Yeah, well that will be 
that that will be up before this like like before this podcast actually gets out. Um, and then even though primary coverage has finished, uh, there is I'll be putting up a transcript of the interview I did with Nora Toomey up on the site later this week. And I'm planning to do two more articles based on my adventures through the screener library as well uh, before that gets shut down on 1st of November as well. So pick up a couple of films I missed out on at the time as well for additional, hmm. you know, co- supplementary coverage as well. Because I, uh, I, I'm a machine, apparently, as Owen says. So... <laughs> <laughs> The Failed Critics Podcast is presented by Steve Norman and Owen Hughes with contributions from different guests every week with original music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com from the track The Bandit remixed by James Yule who you can find at jamesyule.com You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Failed Critics on iTunes and all good podcast apps or you can check us out at failedcritics.com If you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave a rating or a review and why not check out our sister podcasts Character Unlock and Field and Mullinger's Underground Nights from the failed media network of podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. Mm.